0: Welcome to The Paperback Show, a reader's guide to the paperback revolution. I'm Ricky Grove, a retired bookseller, actor, computer graphics reporter, and passionate reader. In today's podcast, we'll focus on the history of the Armed Service Edition paperbacks. These books were designed and produced specifically for our soldiers fighting in World War II. But before we dive into the surprising history, let me tell you what paperbacks I've been reading recently. In preparation for an upcoming guest, Krista Faust, I've been reading her first two major novels, Money Shot and Chokehold, published by Hard Case Crime. Hard Case Crime came on the market about a decade and a half ago, uh, publishing paperbacks with the 50s look, like gold medal paperbacks. They uh, reprinted a lot of uh, books that hadn't been in print uh, since then, and also were commissioning new works. Krista was commissioned for one of the new works and wrote Money Shot First and then Chokehold Next. The background of the books are a former uh, porno star who becomes a porno manager. And uh, she's trying to make sure that the girls are uh, treated fairly and get reasonable good money. And uh, she gets framed for a murder she didn't commit. And uh, the guy that handles security for her, who's an ex uh, disgraced cop helps her out in trying to uh, get back on top and uh, prove her innocence. The first book is excellent. It's got great hard-boiled dialogue and a wonderful background to the porn industry, which she handles with such class, you know. It's just, I haven't read anybody who's written about the porno industry in fiction who handles it as well as she has. She did. And uh, the second book is Chokehold. Um, and it's actually a step up from the money shot, even though Money Shot is great. The problem with Money Shot originally was that it um, depended too much on the male to drive a lot of the action. Well, in Chokehold, that's thrown away and the moral compunctions that the main uh, character has uh, goes out the window. In fact, that becomes a subject of the book. Uh, Morality has always been an interesting uh, issue in hard-boiled fiction and she hits it right on the nail. Um, Don't be mistaken, this book is as tough as nails. There's violence and death in it that are as good as anything, uh, and, and as hard as anything you'll you'll ever read. I highly recommend those books. We'll be hearing from Krista um, as our next guest. I also read an interesting uh, short uh, introduction published by Oxford called A Very Short Introduction Series, and this is a very short introduction to film noir written by J- James Nearmore. Now, I was attracted to the—I like the series anyway, I've been collecting it—but I was attracted to James Naramore because he has written so much about uh, film noir, and I was interested to see uh, what he would uh, say for a short version of it. And Man, is it good. I mean, I've been reading and watching uh, film noir for 30 years now, and there were things in there that I didn't realize. Um, he covers what exactly is film noir. He doesn't feel it's a genre. He feels it's a, it's a kind of style or a mode of shooting. And then he gives you the elements of the mode, most of which you're familiar with. Then he talks about some of the major films, some of the political background and production background, censorship, politics of the era, and then uh, does some recommended films. It made me want to go back and uh, rewatch some of the older films like Act of Violence and Decoy, and a couple others. He covers women in film noir really well. It's just an excellent book, about 110, 120 pages long. If you want a great introduction to film noir, I recommend this, because it'll take you right back to the uh, uh, movies. Although I was aware of the armed service editions through my interest in World War II history and from seeing them come in at the bookstore where I worked at for a long time, I was always curious because the ASEs were in such usual shapes and were double-columned per page. But it wasn't until I read When Books Went to War by Molly Guptal Manning, a Mariner trade paperback published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt in uh, 2014, I finally understood the unique history of these special paperbacks and the incredible effect it had on our soldiers in uh, World War II. I also discovered some really interesting information on several websites where universities have set up uh, online uh, coverage of uh, the armed service editions and their background in history. In fact, speaking of history, let's talk a little bit about that. Although America was very much in the isolationist mode as Hitler and the Nazis took the reins of power in Germany in the 1930s, the general public in the United States followed the news closely. And on April 8, 1933, the main office for press and propaganda, the German Student Union, the DST, proclaimed a nationwide action against the un- un-German spirit, which was to climax in a literary purge of cleansing by fire. The books targeted for burning were those viewed as being subversive or as representative ideologies opposed to Nazism. These included books written by Jewish, Communists, socialist, Anarchists, Liberal, pacifist, Religious, and sex- sexologist authors, among the others. The first books burned were those of Karl Marx and Karl Kautsky. These book burnings were broadcast live by Joseph Goebbels, the Nazi propaganda minister. On 10 May 1933, the students burned upwards of 25,000 volumes of un-German books in the square at the State Opera Berlin. Hundreds, if not thousands, of students burned books all over Nazi Germany. In the aftermath of these book burnings, the Nazi regime raided bookstores, libraries, and publishers' warehouses to confiscate materials it deemed dangerous or un-German. Now, not only German-speaking authors were burned, but also also French authors as Henri Barbous, Henri Gide, Victor Hugo, American writers as Theodore Dreiser, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway, Helen Keller, Jack London, Upton Sinclair, English authors, Joseph Conrad, Aldous Huxley, H. G. Wells, James Joyce, Oscar Wilde, Uh, Russian authors, Isaac Babel, Dostoevsky, Maxim Gorky, and many, many others. Now, Americans, particularly American librarians, were outraged. Ellen Keller published an open letter to German students in which she wrote, You may burn my books in the books of the best minds in Europe, but the ideas those books contain have passed through millions of channels and will go on. H.G. Wells in England established the Library of Burned Books in 1934, which made all of the books which the Nazis burned freely available to the public. Americans engaged in public protest. 800,000 people showed up in New York, 50,000 in Chicago, and 20,000 in Philadelphia. How could Germany, an educated nation renowned for its philosophers and thinkers, tolerate the purge of its libraries and the destruction of its books, went one of the newspaper editorials at the time. One of the loudest voices in protest to the book burnings in the USA was the American Library Association, the ALA. They saw that Nazi Germany, in addition to a military war, was also engaged in a war of ideas, and they wanted to stop them. With Hitler's armies dominating Europe, Roosevelt and the Congress passed a Selective Service Act which called up 16.5 million men between the ages of 21 and 35. The problem was that the army wasn't ready to accommodate all of these new soldiers, They struggled to outfit them and to build training facilities. They also realized that they needed to keep the men busy and in good spirits. Boredom was a big factor. What they needed were books. The ALA, headed by Althea Warren, the LA library head, along with the American Red Cross, started an ambitious book drive in 1941 called the National Defense Book Campaign, with the goal of soliciting 10 million books for the armed services. With the help of librarians all over the country and with a strong advertising campaign, they gathered 500,000 books in the first two weeks. Even publishers joined in by by donating new books. Now, the name of the organization was changed to the Victory Book Campaign after Pearl Harbor and America's entry into the war President Roosevelt, the reader himself, supported the organization, organization, and by 1942, the VBC had collected 4 million books. Now, this was no mean feat, since the public was faced with many drives for public donations at the time, like paper, rags, metal, and rubber. They were all on the list of donations. Politics, and some public criticism of the way the program was being run, Althea Warren left the VBC and was replaced by John Connor. Uh, Donations slagged a bit. There was also another problem. By the time American soldiers were being shipped to war zones all over the world, bulky hardback books were a bad fit with G.I.'s packs. That and the fact that the Army also started buying magazines in bulk, eventually uh, much more lightweight than hardbacks. It made the VBC obsolete. The VBC made their goal of 10 million books collection but many at the time deemed their efforts a failure because so many of the books were inappropriate or damaged. It seemed that a lot of Americans used the book drive to get rid of unwanted books rather than to donate books they thought soldiers might like to read. No, what the soldiers needed was something light, easy to transport, fit in their pack, and easy to read. They needed paperbacks. As we mentioned in our last podcast, pocketbooks and Penguin Books were founded in the USA in 1939. Although sales were great, fewer than 300,000 paperbacks were sold in the USA. But by 1943, this number had risen to over 40 million. Enter the Council on Books in Wartime. The idea came about at a lunch where Clarence Botel, the publicity director for G.P. Putnam, and George Oakes of New York Times got together, and they started thinking about what they could do to help the war effort. This got the ball rolling, and eventually over 72 publishers joined the organization taking the motto, Books are weapons in the war of ideas. The council promoted their ideas through radio shows initially, some of which were just fantastic, um, I highly recommend you looking out for some of these online. They're really interesting to listen to. But eventually they focused on the needs and morale of servicemen stationed on the front lines. In early 1943, there was no book that fit the needs of American servicemen. What emerged in the VBC was the idea to create a paperback book, especially for the armed services, after they decided on style, format, and look of the paperbacks. They received the cooperation of every major U.S. publisher along with the Navy and war departments.
1: Well, when I was researching my first book, The Myth of Ephraim Tut*, I was at Princeton University going through the archives of Charles Scribner's sons, which was a huge publishing house in the 1940s. And I was, as I was going through those records, I kept coming across letters from American servicemen uh, thanking Charles Scribner's sons for providing miniature books called Arms Services Editions. Um, and the letters were so enthusiastic, and I had never heard of Armed Services Editions, that I decided to, to look into what they were even talking about. And that's how I discovered this topic, and I've just loved researching it and, and finding out as much as I can.
0: That was an excerpt from Molly Manning's interview with CUNY TV. Molly Manning wrote the book uh, books, When Books Go to War*. Due to the ex- exigencies of the war and German U-boats, the supply of paper available to U.S. publishers had declined by 63% in 1943. The design of the Armed Service editions had to take this problem into account. The council decided on two sizes of paperback. Larger would be six and one half by four and one half inches. The smaller would be five and a half by three and three eighths inches. They researched the size of the standard military uniform to make sure their sizes fit. The smaller books were wallet sized and could easily be stowed even by frontline soldiers in their packs and in their uh, jacket pockets. Graphically, the council decided on the front cover, which featured the cover of the original hardback edition of the title. All uh, ASCs were reprints of hardback-published books, with a couple few exceptions. Unfortunately, no printing press existed that could accommodate these new sides paperbacks, so the Council went with the magazine presses, which uh, printed books two up. Two books were printed on each page, one above the other, and then were sliced in two by a horizontal cut. Now, one big problem with the two-up method was that it required a lot of editorial work to count pages, words, and characters in order to match similarly sized books. They creatively used the extra space if two books didn't have the exact same length by including the author's biography, which I think was a stroke of genius. Although most books were not condensed, some were, and this was noted on the front page of the paperback book. Another interesting decision the council made was to print the books on the short side so that they were wider than they were tall. They were also wanted to make the books readable for soldiers, so they used two columns of text on each page. They believed that the battle-weary soldier would find the shorter lines of texts easier to read. Now, the council agreed to sell the books they printed at cost. Seven cents a copy, which eventually fell to 5.9 cents, with the addition, One-Cent Royalty, which was split between the author and the original publisher. For some authors, even though this royalty sounds small, it really helped them out. Initially, the Army and Navy wanted 50,000 copies of each of 50 titles, 1.5 million books per month, 80% to the Army and 20% to the Navy. Now, how did they select the titles for the Armed Service editions? The council created a three-part process to select titles for the massive amount of books they would produce each month. One, the publisher chose titles from their stock list of books, what they thought would appeal to servicemen. And two, the council had a staff of readers outside the publishing industry providing their opinions on the merits of each book selected by the publisher. And three... Government approval from the heads of the library section of the Navy and selected representative from the Army would make the final decision. Now, the main consideration of book selection was variety. They wanted each month's selection to appeal to a wide variety of soldiers. The most popular type was contemporary fiction, which was 20%, followed by historical novels, mysteries, books of humor, and westerns. Other categories included adventure stories, histories, music, nature, poetry, science, self-help and inspirational sea and navy stories, short story collections, biographies, and travel books. Now, the Council decided early on they did not want to censor books. A title was either published, unexpurgated, or it was simply not published. There were some popular books that were not printed in the armed service editions due to issues like giving offense to Americans' allies, giving aid and comfort to the enemy, uh, offense to any religious or racial groups. For example, Zane Gray's Riders of the Purple Sage was rejected because of some cowboys in the book who urged the heroine to break away from the Mormon church, and they criti- criticized the church in the book. Um, politically, this became a bit of a football in the, uh, later parts of the, uh, life of the Armed Service Editions, but that story is a little too detailed to get into now. Managing the complexities of production of the Armed Service Editions was Philip Van Doran Stern, who had a staff of 10. One can only imagine the challenges and hard work these people had to face in order to meet their 50 paperbacked Armed Service Edition titles each month. And so in September 1943, the first of the 50 ASEs went out, named as the A-Series to the Army and Navy, totaling 1.5 million books. The program was followed closely by the news media to generally positive reviews. The New York Times noted, mountains of books, good books, including classic, current bestsellers, are being distributed among our fighting men overseas. Bundles of these books had been flown to the Anzio beachhead by plane. Others were passed out to Marines at Tarawa within a few days after the last remnant of Japanese occupation had been extinguished. They had been dropped by parachute to output forces on lonely Pacific Isles, issued in huge lot to hospitals behind combat areas in all points of the world, and passed out to soldiers as they embarked on transport for overseas duties. So what did the soldiers think of these armed service additions? Now, one infantryman told a war correspondent that these little books are great things. They take you away. Another soldier in the Pacific Campaign, and Molly Manning quotes him at the beginning of her book, said that reading allowed him to rediscover his humanity. With all the death and destruction around him, he simply stopped feeling. He had a dead heart. But reading A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith caused something inside him to begin to stir this heart of mine turned over and became alive again. This was in a letter the soldier wrote to the author Betty Smith. In fact, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn was one of the most popular armed service editions with all soldiers. Many authors chosen for publications had their careers renewed or rediscovered. Now, believe it or not, The Great Gatsby was a failure when first published in hardback. But the ASE edition created a whole new readership for this wonderful, sad, brilliant novel. Now, another soldier told how during the Battle of Saipan, he carried a copy of Carl Sandberg's Storm Over the Land in his helmet. Now, during the lulls in the battle, I would read what he wrote about another war and found a great deal of comfort and reassurance. Years later, Sandberg inscribed the book for him. What a moment that must have been. One of the most extraordinary stories from the thousands reported by war correspondents and covered by Molly Manning and written in letters was about the D-Day, Normandy invasion. It was reported by men who climbed the Omaha Beach later on that day that they saw wounded men propped up against the base of a cliff reading armed service editions.
1: They, um... They were so delighted to receive them. Um, on the one hand I think a lot of people were surprised to, to receive books um, and then once they realized um, why they were receiving books and that American publishers cared about their morale um, as did the Army and Navy, they were really touched that um, this was going on because it was one of the few morale programs that was, su- was so successful um, and it was something that, um, these books served as a, as a reminder of home Um, Especially when mail wasn't coming through. Sometimes it would take four or five months for letters from their families to arrive. And so, at a time when they were homesick and feeling isolated, stationed in foreign countries all over the world, um, to receive a book from America, usually about American life, um, was a huge boon. Did the books go virtually everywhere soldiers were stationed? They were. There's stories of books being sent to units that were. All over the world, sometimes by parachute, um, sometimes they were just uh, delivered with weapons and Mm -hmm. other materials that had to come through. Um, The books remarkably made it just about everywhere, even on remote Pacific Islands. Mm -hmm. Um, So, how many books, how many um, Armed Services Edition books were produced and shipped over time? Over the course of the war, from 1943 to 1947, 123 million armed services editions were printed. That's incredible. Yeah, that's incredible.
0: Now, publication of the ASC continued until after the war, coming to an end in September 1947. Over the life of the program, over 122 million copies of ASC books were printed. This makes the ASC program one of the largest wide scale distribution of free books in history. 1,225 were unique titles and 99 were reprints of titles issued earlier in the series. 63 of the titles were made books. They were a collection of short stories, poems, plays, essays, or radio plays, usually by the same author, that were assembled and published together for the first time. The profound effect of the ASC program was that it produced a generation of post-war readers, and some writers as well, As the G.I. Bill allowed soldiers to pursue college degrees, their reading habits were already instilled in them, and they were primed to succeed. Plus, the post-war boom in paperback publishing had a ready-made audience of readers who were already accustomed to having a paperback in their back pocket. Molly Manning, in her books that went to war, has a complete list of ASCs in the back of her excellent book, and I've got a slideshow of book covers at my paperbackshow.com website. And by the way, the only complete collection of armed service editions in the world is held by the Library of Congress. Collecting ASEs is a lot of fun, but some titles are more collectible than others, for example, Dracula by Bram Stoker is almost $100 for a copy in good condition, whereas less popular authors can be purchased for $5 to $10. Used bookstores often had collections donated to them and price them cheaply. You just have to do a little hunting. The creating of the Armed Service Edition helped our soldiers in World War II cope with the horrors of war by bringing them laughter and a touch of home. The psychological cost of the war was immense. But reading helped them cope and gave them just a bit of hope to carry on.